the the compulsion or the ritual part of it is that I go through these what I would consider mental gymnastics. Imagine, okay, a student is locked in the supply closet. What's going to happen? How are we going to get them out? How are we going to make sure that that doesn't happen? And the anxiety that I feel, it's as though there's really somebody like trapped in there. Hello, welcome to Square Pegs Podcast. In this podcast, we share first-hand experiences of neurodiverse graduate students and faculty members. I'm your sometimes guest host, Lexi Hain. And I'm the host, Arik Zaghi. Today, my guest is Sarah Goodman. She's a teaching assistant professor in the Department of Chemical Engineering and Material Science at Stevens Institute of Technology. She got her bachelor's degree in chemistry from Rutgers University and her PhD in material science and engineering from MIT in 2020. Today, we are going to talk about obsessive compulsive disorder, also known as OCD. OCD is considered by some people as a dimension of neurodiversity. I really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you enjoyed this too. Give it a listen. Thank you very much, Sarah, for agreeing to be my guest today. I really appreciate your time. And I'm very excited about this conversation because we're going to talk about the dimension of neurodiversity that we haven't touched on actually so far, uh, OCD. I'm uh, very excited about uh, learning about your experiences. And I think there is there will be a lot of new information for our listeners. How about we start by a little bit of background information on how we got to know each other and how we got to have a conversation around this and it evolved to this podcast recording. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be able to contribute. I learned a lot from the past episodes and yeah, I'm excited to be here. So how we met and how I found out about this podcast was actually at the ASEE conference. So it's the American Society for Engineering Education. And that was in late June, I think, in Baltimore. And I was at the poster session and Arash's poster, you know, your poster caught my eye. And I was sort of like awed by it because your research is about giving research opportunities to students who have experiences of neurodiversity. And when I saw that, I remembered back to my own undergraduate research experience, which was so transformational for me because I really believe it is what put me on a path to kind of healing and overcoming this all-consuming anxiety Mm. that I had as an undergraduate as a result of untreated OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. So when I found out that there's actual research going on about how, you know, giving research opportunities to people who are neurodiverse or who identify under that umbrella term of neurodiversity, I thought, I have to find out more about this. So then we had a brief chat and you told me about your interest in this topic from a completely different point of view. Again, your experience as a graduate student and undergraduate student. So I I can see like two areas that we can touch on. One is your experience with research as an undergraduate student, as a neurodiverse individual, and also your experience with OCD. So which one do you want to start talking about first? You know, I think we could start talking about maybe why I felt that having a research opportunity as an undergraduate helped me and helped my mental health with where I was at at that point in time. 
I can also start a little bit by saying I was diagnosed with OCD pretty recently, like within the past year. But when I got that diagnosis, I understood my whole mm. life. And I understood that what was happening in, in when I was little and in high school and in college, I understood what all of those symptoms were. So I didn't know at the time what it was that I was dealing with, but I can look back and know it now. And at the time, what I was dealing with was just this level of anxiety that I can't even describe. And I think there were three reasons why getting to just be in the lab and do research as an undergrad helped me to be free, a little bit free of anxiety. And the first thing is the distraction. Because for me with OCD, you know, I fixate on something and that thing is in my mind and if it's something i'm worried about i i can't let it go mm -hmm. and so just to have a project that was totally different than everything i had done before those hours that i spent in the lab in my sophomore and junior year those were some of the the only times when i felt like you know this squeezing in my chest could unclench a little bit and and everything that's so tightly wound up can start to relax and unwind because it was just something totally different to think about and it, it was kind of a distraction and just regular school courses wouldn't be able to distract you enough or regular school tasks I think I had so much anxiety surrounding you know performing a certain way in those tasks that you want something outside something totally outside and the second reason why i think it helped me so much is because imagine like with with ocd and i can get into a little bit later what exactly yes, yeah. that is and what exactly the symptoms are for me but this idea of trying to do everything perfectly or just do it a certain type of way. The thing about doing novel research is that it's never been done before. So how can you, there's no definition of perfect of something that's never been done before. So it was just totally exploratory. And that was one thing that really helped. And then having somebody just trust me with a project, that was very profound for me, where my advisor, uh, shout out Professor Deirdre O'Carroll at Rutgers, she just kind of handed me this project and was like, okay, research this topic, find out about it, and go do experiments in the lab. And I was very naive to the culture of academia. I, I didn't know what I was getting myself into or that would lead to getting a PhD and then becoming a faculty member. But at the time, I was just like, wow, when I report my results to her, like she she believes me and she trusts me. And that gave me so much confidence. And yeah, so I think that's the main reasons why that experience was so formative and, and helpful for me. Mm -hmm. And the third one? Oh, wait, I think that was three. I think oh. it was a distraction, there not being a definition of perfect and being trusted with this work. So helping with confidence building. Yeah, confidence building. I think that's a yeah. good word. So you mentioned that, and I really love to hear more about OCD, something that I haven't had much exposure. And I have, again, I have heard that people complain about it. So can you give us a picture what goes in your mind i mean like what is bothersome about that and also what could be advantages 
Okay. Yeah. I'm absolutely happy to get into that. I want to talk about how I experience OCD because there are so many types and it's so different from everybody. I definitely want to discuss with you how OCD fits into this term of neurodiversity. And then we can definitely get into thinking about, and you know, I've never really considered, are there any assets that I bring because of my OCD. And and that's something I'm I'm interested to hear your perspective on as well. So what is OCD? Okay. So this obsessive compulsive disorder, it can be characterized by obsessions followed by compulsions. We often, I think when we think of OCD, we think about these compulsions that we can see. So if somebody is worried about being contaminated with something, and and I am, so one of the types of OCD I have is contamination OCD, that ritual that we might have in mind or that compulsion might be hand washing or constantly applying hand sanitizer or something like that. But there are other forms of these compulsions that we can't see. So for me, almost everything happens inside my head. And I can actually give you a concrete example that happened to me a couple of weeks ago. And I'll speak very specifically about what goes through my mind. And the reason that I want to be so specific about it is because the reason that I got it in my head, hey, maybe this is something that I have is because I went to a mental health talk at MIT where I was a graduate student and I heard somebody describing their symptoms of OCD and I thought, oh, maybe I should look more into that. So Mm. that's part of the reason why I want to be so specific about it. So the example I'll give is that a couple of weeks ago, I was in a meeting and we were getting ready for a lab renovation. So I, you know, we have these teaching labs and they want to make it a little bit nicer. And part of what they want to do is put in this storage supply closet type thing. So they were kind of laying out on the floor, like where they would put this. And we were thinking about, okay, are we going to have card access? Is is it going to be locked? How are students going to get in? And then beyond my control, this image pops into my mind. And this is the obsession part, okay? Mm-hmm. So this image pops into my mind, a student locked in the supply closet. Okay. So, and I think this is a thing many people can relate to getting these random, maybe unwanted images popping into your mind. And for people without OCD, my understanding is that they can just ignore that image. Okay. That's a bad thing that can happen. Okay. It's not going to happen. Move on. But for me, the, the compulsion or the ritual part of it is that I go through these, what I would consider mental gymnastics. Imagine, okay, a student is locked in the supply closet. What's going to happen? How are we going to get them out? How are we going to make sure that that doesn't happen? And the anxiety that I feel, it's as though there's really somebody like trapped in there. And so I did not hear anything in that meeting for the next 10 minutes because I was going through every worst case scenario in my mind of, What happens if somebody is locked in the supply closet? Are they there overnight? What if it's the weekend? What if they yell for help and no one can hear, right? This sounds objectively ridiculous, Mm -hmm. probably, to a lot of people listening, but it feels real in my mind. And while it's- When you say it feels real, you consider it as a high probability event or- How does the anxiety associated with it look like? Is it like as if someone has told you recently that this happened or it is like you consider it as a very high probability event that has happened in the past. So it may happen again very with a high probability. 
Great question. I think for me, the probability, it doesn't matter. It's meaningless. And that's mm-hmm. absurd for me to say as someone, you know, with, well, with interest and expertise in math, right? But to me, there are two possibilities. A student gets locked in the supply closet or a student doesn't get locked in the supply closet. And it feels like these, all of these worst case scenarios, maybe it could happen. And I'll feel that way if I don't know, I you know, feel something weird on my arm or my leg, right? Then that sends me into like, well, what if I have this or what if I have this and go on WebMD and look up everything? There's mm. no probability involved for me. Like it, when I'm in this state, those statistics don't help. That Your description was very helpful to me because I was able to actually look back at some of my obsessive thoughts and now I completely understand that there is no connection with reality or like, so it's just like something very real that exists. Yeah. Then when that feeling kind of passes and, and to get that feeling to pass these rituals or compulsions, that's the thing that helps that feeling to pass. I go through all of these mental gymnastics to convince myself, okay, if it happened, I could do this. I could solve the problem or this is the thing I should do to prevent it. And then after that feeling passes and I look back on it and I think, I can't believe in that moment, I truly believed this was a problem. And I'm, I'm so removed from it after it's happened. But while it's happening, it's like there's nothing else in the world that matters and that's significant. Sarah, has it ever been valid that some of those plans or actions you took to mitigate the concerns about something actually they proved to be helpful in because something came to be true actually yes but i think that's a very interesting territory to get into and to talk about because the idea, I think, of treatment for OCD is that you don't want to be spending so much of your life going through these compulsions, right? We want to be able to approach it from a reasonable standpoint. Mm-hmm. But every situation that quote unquote validates the OCD, like you're saying, oh, I noticed this, I went to the doctor. Oh, turns out I was right. I should have gone to the doctor that one out of, you know, 30 times that I went because this was an issue. And that in your brain, it tells your brain, oh, so it was good that I went through all of those compulsion type behavior and I spent all of that time on it. And then your brain, from my understanding, is more likely to do those behaviors in the future when it's really not that helpful. That's something I've thought about a lot, right? And and I'm really interested in this idea of OCD kind of being under the umbrella of neurodiversity because, you know, when you invited me to this podcast, I took a look into it. I started Googling about it. And it seems like people say, you know, if you want to consider it, you can consider it. If you don't want to, you don't have to consider it. It's really depending on the personal experience. I think that there is a little bit of a distinction in the way that I think about my OCD compared to the way that a lot of the type of things um, that have been previously discussed on the podcast have been thought about, like dyslexia or ADHD or autism spectrum. We're saying that, you know, there are many different kinds of brains and society is unfortunately structured to advantage 
a particular type of brain, but there's no one type that's better than the other. But I have really considered OCD as this is a disease that I want to get rid of. And I think there are a lot of people who do consider it that way. So I want to draw the distinction between we're definitely talking about two different things, um, whether we would consider OCD neurodiversity or not. Or about the same thing from two perspectives. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. Same thing from two <laughs> perspectives. Yeah, that'll be good. Because again, like if, we, if I compare it with dyslexia, one may suggest that there is nothing cool about not being able to read at your level or write at your level. For example, my reading and writing skill is, I'm not talking about storytelling, I'm talking about mechanics of writing, is maybe seven, eighth grade, something like that. My storytelling is good. So I think that is what's helping me in, in my job. But in terms of the mechanics of writing or reading, reading, I don't read, I just listen to audiobooks or I use the read aloud feature of uh, Microsoft Word when I have to read a text. So there is nothing cool about that, but yet there are aspects of that might not be related to dyslexia at all. I'm just like keeping the door open, you know, like, but like there is literature that suggests that actually if there are problems in terms of decoding of text, it means that brain is more maybe attuned to understanding imagery. Mm. understanding visual information. So again, like I wonder if there is a, something comes with it with OCD, because again, like I've seen that when we review literature on neurodiversity, every other one, they recognize OCD as being a dimension of neurodiversity. So again, like I, I, I'd love to be educated more on that to see, for example, what could be about. I can see, for example, in a world that no judgment is involved and like freedom is given to individual. And like, for example, your role is to think about the most remote happening and fix that so we don't make that mistake. I mean, like even just as it is, it might have a place again, like not in the current format of the society, but in, in again, like in a in parallel universe. Yeah. I, I don't know what to think about that. But now that I'm starting to think about it, because truly, I never before this really considered, is there any advantage to being the way that I am? I would say, I certainly have a higher degree of empathy for mm. students who may be going through, it doesn't have to be the same thing as me, but any type of issue with mental health or just anything that's going on. Why? The, what, what brings you that level of empathy? Well, because I have something going on on the inside that nobody can tell. So I think that I would be more mm -hmm. open to, you know, accepting the fact that someone else might be experiencing the same thing that's not visible. Yeah, yeah. Or just being really conscious of checking in with students, even if I can't see visibly that something might be wrong. Maybe something is going on just constantly, you know, checking in and asking how people are doing and just being kind of an open door for students or, or anybody, right, in, in my university or my department mm -hmm. to just kind of come check in. 
And, you know, this type of analytical thinking, you might be right. And I, I haven't researched too much into it. You know, the, I'm not a, a psychologist. My area is semiconductor devices and microscopy. So I've only researched this to the extent that it kind of applies to my life. So I would be really interested to know if having that like systematic, like looking at all the possibilities from mm-hmm. every single angle that could possibly happen. I don't know. Is there is there something to that? And maybe there is. If you're planning a Mars mission, don't you want to make sure you have an, a person with OC tendencies in the team? Maybe not as the director, maybe. But again, like we, we're not gonna, we're not going to say roles. I mean, like, but the same way that, for example, you, maybe you want to put the the person with ADHD in charge of the planning but you want to have someone who just pops in with a lot of energy, suggests some crazy ideas, doesn't follow through, leaves the room and nothing else. But like other people may be inspired, you know, maybe encouraged to look into things. So I think if, again, like if we, when we talk about neurodiversity, we mean it, we are not talking about individual. The same way that when we are talking about the forest, we are not talking about one tree anymore. So neurodiversity is like, we work together and we bring these cognitive skills in a complementary fashion to make it exponentially better than the, the summation of the, the individuals. And that, that's why it is important. Again, like I can, if I am setting up a team for a task like that with a lot of uncertainties and unknowns, I will make sure someone with OCD is in there. Yeah, that's how well- I see that. NASA, you know, you have my email, <laughs> reach out. No, just kidding. <laughs> Again, like you're a university professor also. I mean, don't, don't you see the value of that? I mean, like, for example, in, in particularly for things that they, uh, a lot of unknowns are in, involved. I tend to over-prepare. And that over preparation for everything, it it leads some positive outcomes, right? Even we were just talking about it before this interview, you know, I had tested all my audio setup, the mic, everything was ready because I had some degree of anxiety about it. And Another thing that can happen with OCD is that you you do things to achieve this quote unquote like just right feeling. And that's a little bit harder to describe and explain. And I imagine it would be very different for everybody who experiences that, but that can give a level of perfectionism. Can you unpack it a little bit more? Is it is it based on certain standard expectation or is just internal? I think some of it is internal and some of it is based on certain standards and expectations. Like, and as I've gotten older, I've sort of hidden those behaviors more, but there'll be little like movement, you could call it like ticks, right? And I think now nobody would notice, right? I've asked, you know, my friends if they notice I'm doing these things. And no, they don't notice anything. But I think when I was younger, people would notice, you know, I'll clench and unclench my muscles in a certain way or or make little noises in the back of my throat that only I can hear. And that's achieving this this just right feeling. And I I really don't know how else to explain it. But then I think you can also get that feeling from external things that, okay, I I know that this assignment is supposed to be done a certain way and I want to get it to that 
just right way. I want to get it to that perfect form. And then that's where a lot of like the academic and and now now I'm I have a job, right? I'm a professor. So like job performance type anxiety comes in. How about like perfecting the style and formatting of something? Does that consume maybe more than necessary time when you're working on I think to an extent it did and I'm working to not have that consume so much time. I you know, I would love to eventually be able to achieve this kind of balance where maybe, you know, how much I care about the thing doesn't change, but that I don't have to perform these kind of compulsive ritualistic behaviors or thoughts around that topic. Because even when I started treatment for OCD or before I even found out I had OCD, I started treatment for anxiety. One of my big worries is, well, is that going to make me care less? Because I, I think, I think there's a balance between caring about something and then caring about it so much and in a certain type of way that it is just all consuming. Interesting. So in the context of, again, like you're really educating me. I'm, I'm really enjoying this conversation. In the context of like day by day of educational life for an undergraduate student, even high schooler, uh, can you give us some examples how OCD can generate anxiety or impede the success of students? Sure. So I can speak to the type of thing that I used to deal with. In high school, I dealt with a lot of contamination OCD, which was I was afraid of, you know, getting sick, really. And there was no basis in reality for me to be any more worried than the next person should be. But I would come home thinking I had every rare disease and then I would mm -hmm. just look it up and and I would I would like ask all of my friends and family like hey do you think I have this symptom do you think this is happening to me because for OCD we want like validation like your brain wants validation that okay this isn't actually happening to me but you the more you give your brain the validation the more you're encouraging those OCD behaviors to continue so let me tell you, it feels really good in the moment to go on WebMD or something and to to look up this symptom and like, oh, okay, so I probably don't have this, right? But that's doing more harm in the long run because your brain is more likely to to do that again. In high school, it would take a lot of my time and a lot of my energy it would be hard to focus on other things because of it. And I would always just have this baseline level of anxiety because also, you know, I didn't know why this was happening to me. And I think that was also part of it. How about being obsessed about time or, or like tidiness or things like that? Any, has any of those been, been challenged? Yeah, I'm an incredibly messy person. You can ask my partner. I mean, he, I, my office is a mess for whatever reason. The, the way that OCD manifests itself for me, I, generally speaking, don't have too many difficulties with 
things being like arranged in a certain way. How about time? Time as in, what, what do you mean? Being one minute late, for example, make you drives you crazy or oh. super anxious. No, <laughs> no, I'm okay being a few minutes late. Okay, so very good. So how about uh, your graduate life at MIT? How was your experience there? And You know, when I said before that when I got into research, it was so helpful for me sort of overcoming anxiety because if something hasn't been done before, there's no perfect way to do it. Well, as I got more and more entrenched into the culture of academia, I realized more and more there might not be a perfect way to, you know, solve the scientific problem, but there is this image of a perfect grad student, in my mind at least. And in grad school, I got really hung up on trying to be that. What was that image? Can you explain? The person who utilizes every single minute of their day in the best way possible. The person who's organized and who puts in their calendar like, okay, I'm going to spend this hour reading papers and I'm going to spend the next hour writing this thing up. Then I'm going to go do experiments and then I'm going to bring my you know meal prepped meal and I'm going to eat it for lunch and then just making making use of all the time and was there a real person that these were modeled after or it was just like all just internal model that you had formed? I think it was like the best of everybody Everything. who I saw. And if I saw one person doing this one thing really amazing, I thought, okay, I have to do that. And if I saw another person doing this other different thing really well, okay, I have to do that. And I think imposter syndrome had a lot to do with it because if you feel like, I don't know, I don't really belong here, they're going to find me out, then you feel like, well, I better do everything I can to make it look like I'm the type of person who should be here. Being at MIT, did it play a role? Exasperating this? I think it did. And I think I was really intimidated by, you know, this is a, a program that's ranked really highly and there are a ton of people who are deserving to be here. And how could I possibly be? be chosen for this. And I look back and realize, you know, I mean, this is such a broader conversation about like college and grad school in general, but amazing. Yeah, let's go to it because I, I know a lot of people that in future would listen to this. They are where you were. And so like any insight you can share with them. I mean, like now that you can, can you can look back retrospectively, think about it. Amazing work is done everywhere. And, you know, there's, of course, different institutions have, you know, different amounts of money for different amounts of resources. And that 100% plays in. But in terms of like, there are amazing faculty everywhere. There are amazing grad programs everywhere. You can be doing really, really cool and unique work everywhere. And so I don't think I should have been so fixated on like, well, where am I, you know, getting into grad school? And then I think, yeah, even this whole ranking business, I think everyone would feel less stressed if we just didn't have that. But of course, I'm not a university administrator, so I, I'm sure there are things about that that I'm not considering. Mm -hmm. Did your old city have anything to do with you choosing MIT? 
That's a great question. And I mean, I guess we'll never really know. Maybe, right? <laughs> we'll never know. Yeah. Because again, like if you were modeling all of this after that ideal image that you had in mind, MIT is certainly part of it, doing your PhD at MIT. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. But again, here we are. You're super successful. If that pushed you to go to one of the best institutions in the world, do your PhD? Yeah. And that's it's just such a good question, right? Because I think the question is, how, how much is too much when you're trying to accomplish a goal? And I could say to myself, being able to get such good grades in undergrad and pushing myself to do that, that's what led me to be able to do all of these things I can do and, and open all of these doors that might not otherwise have been open. But I can also take a look back on it and look at my health and say, yes. was that worth it? Just the way that I felt and and how anxious I was and prioritizing how well I did in my classes over literally everything. Was that the best decision I could have made at the time? I think it was not. But it's also hard to look back and say that because I I'm I love like where I am right now and being able to do all the things I was able to do. And I you know what? I, okay, here's what it is. I'd like to be able to think that if I had focused on my physical health and mental health a little bit more, I still would have found a way to do all these things that I wanted to do. It's such a tough question. It is a tough question. And parallel to that is when I talk to younger faculty, those that they're now tenure track assistant professor, I will tell them that I could do it without being so stressful all the time. Most of the times, the response I get immediately is that you can say that because you went through it and now you look back and say that. And I don't know what to say. I agree with them. But at the same time, I have this belief that you have that there could be a way to do it without being so anxious. It's a very interesting paradigm. I don't have an answer for it. And it's interesting that from two completely different perspectives, we are asking this question, which in its essence is the same thing. Is it fair to look back and say, oh, I should have done it with less anxiety or anxiety was part of it. It was the nature of the beast. I'm not justifying at all abusive systems that they are at the cost of mental health or well-being of individuals they're trying to produce. I'm not at all legitimizing that type of you know approach. But always like that, I think it's just like part of being human to look back and say, oh, I could do that. Yeah, of course. I mean, like after I learned all of those kind of tricks and, and ways of succeeding, I can look back and say, I, I could do that better. Is it fair to say that though? I, I don't know. I have I don't have an answer. It's just like a question. And again, I've heard that a lot from people that I talk to, more junior faculty that they say, you say these things because you went through it. You don't You don't remember how it felt like at that point. So. For sure. And I think another kind of compounding factor for me was even if I had told myself, okay, I'm giving myself permission to, to stop stressing about this so much and focus more on my health. I don't know if I would have been able to because of the way this like disorder works in my mind and was sort of forcing me to, to be this anxious all the time. Mm -hmm. 
And and uh, Sarah, are you aware of again? Like this is not something that I have done any study. I'm just like curious. I'm asking this. Are you aware of meditation or any mindfulness practices being effective in reducing some of the anxiety? Anxiety for for sure. Yeah, OCD specifically. I I haven't. I actually haven't yeah. looked into it. I should. I should look into it. But the, uh, the anxiety, you think it's gonna. I think so. Yeah. Maybe we needed better tools. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I think you make a good point about like we're talking about my situation. You know, one specific person like in this system of academia that kind of does glorify people who are trying to be this quote unquote perfect image of a graduate student or be perfectly productive all the time. But what I like to ask myself now that I'm a faculty member is what can I do to to prevent that from happening or to not give students the impression that in my class that's what I'm looking for. What do you do? Can you give examples, like or some some ideas that you may have to break that image? Essentially, I think that the most low hanging fruit of all time, but such an important thing, is to take testing accommodations really really seriously and that may sound kind of obvious but i have heard other faculty say things like oh you know i understand why so and so needs the exam in larger print but what's with all the, this extra time you know and to speak up for that and be like no these are actually real things that these students actually need and to make sure that they get connected to the right people who are going to find them that private room to take the exam in or who are going to be able to stay with them that extra amount of time. And I know in big classes that professors may just consider that an additional ask, but I think it doesn't just benefit those students who need the accommodations. When you say to the class, you know, hey, make sure you email me if you have an accommodation because that sets the tone for the rest of the class. And it tells them, I am taking this type of thing really, really seriously. I'm taking, you know, something that that you need. I want to be able to give that to you. That's very interesting. And we have a large NSF project. It's NSF Red, revolutionizing engineering departments, actually. It's on the topic of neurodiversity. And we explore different interventions, project-based learning, how to make sure that there are different modes of delivery and evaluation, all of those things. And time after another one, we realize what really matters is the type of communication and messaging. Yeah. So it's what you actually do is way less important than the impression you build for the students that they don't belong or you only value one way of thinking, working, problem solving in this class, or no, you have an open mind. You really want to help them. And I 100% agree with you. Just mentioning that in the class, that right there shows that Oh, I'm here to support you in any way to make sure you can fulfill your potential. So yeah. that type of messaging is way more important than that. I mean, again, like we have seen that in our data and and that that is the impression that students get is going to be a, another torturous class or I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And then also, like I mentioned, um, just 
checking in with students because I had cases, you know, when I was an undergraduate, this would happen to me. Unfortunately, often I would just be sitting in class or even in office hours with just like tears, just like streaming down my face. And I'm not saying this so people feel bad for me, but I'm just saying it as an example. Like no faculty member ever came up to me and asked like, are you okay? Like you're, you're crying like in my office hours. That's, that's something where you might want to check in with the person. And even if that person looks fine, you just, you just never know. And maybe if if the student you ask them how they're doing and they don't they don't want to say anything that's that's fine right and, but what if that one person did need somebody to talk to and and you were there for them so that's just what i try to do that's so important yes that is we need more people that have high level of empathy actually in academia because we tend to look at only one dimension of like learning my technical content as I think it is important and not seeing the person as a whole with with yeah. all of those challenges that they may be going through. And forgetting that actually we have been there, maybe not when we were undergrad or grad student, but like there are times in our lives that we are really helpless. And at those times, I mean, like any, any, word of support reinforcement does magic honestly it is it its impact is it can be a transformative yeah yeah so uh, for in terms of involving undergraduate students in your labs do you actively encourage them to given that you had this positive experience doing research what do you do about that? Do you encourage them to participate in research projects or? So I'm a teaching faculty member, so I don't have my own, you know, big research lab, but I do actually get to take undergraduate students for research projects related to education. Um, mm -hmm. So that's been really, really fun this summer. And yeah, I encourage all of my undergrads in my courses to get involved with research. And the thing that I tell them is, don't worry about if you have the right background for a research mm -hmm. project or not. Don't self-select yourself out of something that sounds interesting just because you think, oh, I don't, I don't know how to use that program that they mentioned or I've never studied this topic because that's what these undergraduate research opportunities are for. And you're going to learn so much on the job that it almost as long as you're curious and you want to learn these new skills, then oftentimes faculty will be so excited to work with you. And there could be some specific cases where, I don't know, someone needs a, a person who knows MATLAB, for example. So I, I understand that there are those cases, but oftentimes it's really like you just show up and you bring yourself and you bring your curiosity and you'll learn all of the lab stuff. Yeah. So before we start the second part of our conversation, is there anything that you want to add uh, we didn't cover in, mm. relate, in relationship with, with OCD? One, one more thing that I would say in terms of what I try to do as a faculty member, and you know, this is, I just finished up my first year, 
teaching at the college level. So this is it's always a work in progress for me. But I try to allow students to have some level of creativity in some of the projects that we do and to try to draw personal connections to your own life and your own feelings and emotions from the content. And maybe it sounds weird to describe, but I think because I didn't have the the technical vocabulary as a a college student or even grad student to describe how my, my mental health was feeling, when I learned these engineering concepts, I would kind of apply that to my mental health. Like when I learned about, you know, quantum mechanics and like a particle being stuck in a potential well and and vibrating at a certain frequency, I I thought, oh, okay, that's like when I get this anxiety and I'm stuck in the potential well and I can't get out, right? And then when I learned about like plastic and elastic deformation, I would think mm-hmm. like, I have to make sure I'm not plastically deforming my brain or myself by by putting myself all through this and and thinking about I don't know all of these cool concepts from quantum mechanics that are so like poetic mm-hmm. and like I don't know being able to connect it to how I felt made me more interested in that science or engineering concept so I I want to try to do that more in my classes to encourage those type of um, explorations. That matters a lot because building context and making sure students, they relate in one way or it, it can be some creative way of relating to the topic or some actual, for example, like experience of, oh, I work with my dad, like in the mechanic shop and I know this material. And so it, it can be a direct, relationship or it can be something creative as you mentioned but we have to make sure that connection is made otherwise it remains nebulous and abstract what we are teaching them yeah yeah absolutely Sarah, I know that the second part of the conversation has a preamble. So why don't you say that? And then we we can move to the next part of the conversation. What we're going to talk a little bit about next is eating disorder and my experiences with that and maybe the connection there between eating disorder and OCD. And there there are a number of reasons why someone might not want to hear a conversation about eating disorder. So that's why we wanted to separate the discussion into two parts. So if you wanted to dip out of the conversation, then you'd be more than welcome, or you can stay and listen to this the second part on eating disorder in grad school. So I will let you, again, like when we talked during the ASE conference, you brought that up and I found it extremely relevant to the mission of this podcast because it has to do with well-being of students in a high-stress environment. So give us some background information. And I, I read your blog or article that you wrote a few years back. It was amazing. So tell us about all of those. When I had initially seen your poster at the poster session, like it just all of these different things kept coming to my mind about all of these things I that I, I struggled with as an undergraduate, a graduate student and a researcher. And eating disorder was one of those things that came to my mind. And we had a little bit of a conversation about it. And my experiences kind of 
being an engineer and then also sort of trying to engineer my body to be a certain way. So yeah, I'm I'm interested to discuss with you about eating disorder because I was also part of this group when I was a graduate student of students who who were recovering from eating disorder. It was this group by the mental health services at my school. And we were sort of talking about how like this might be more common in grad school than people might initially think it is. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience? Did it happen gradually? Was it triggered by something? Just like how it how it evolved for you? I would say that it definitely reached its worst in grad school because one thing that I've learned about eating disorders is that they're oftentimes about control mm-hmm. and using for me it was this restriction of food as a way to regulate anxiety. There's actually, you know, research done and and psychologists who will argue that eating disorder is or can be a a type of OCD or a symptom of OCD because that restriction of the food or whatever it is you're doing is that type of ritualistic compulsion that's being used to overcome an anxiety. And so that's not my area of expertise. So that's all I'll say about that. But it's probably related for me is Mm -hmm. what I'm trying to say. And I think what was- Did it have anything to do with the body image? Yeah, body image for sure, for sure, right? But I think for me, even more than that, in grad school, everything felt out of control. It felt out of my control. My results- for research, out of my control, my grades to a certain extent, out of my control. You know, a lot of people talk about getting to college and realizing they didn't know how to study in high school and now they have to learn Mm -hmm. how to study in college. For me, that happened in grad school. I pretty much studied the same way in college that I studied in high school and that, that served me well. But then when I got to grad school, I realized that way of studying is not going to cut it for me. I was very like I started doing poorly on exams for the first time and honestly that that was like the first time that I had that experience and so feeling like all that was out of my control it sometimes can just feel like the food that you're putting into your body is the only thing that you independently have control over. Was it conscious or subconscious? Yeah, that's a great question. I can think back on it now and be like, oh, yeah, this is exactly why I was doing this. What it was is that for whatever reason, I felt like restricting my food would help me to be more organized, use my time efficiently, be more productive, and that it all sort of started with my food intake. And there was so much messaging that I was receiving in grad school about how to be productive and how to be healthy and living your best life and and all of that. And what was really, there was a big culture of meal replacements at the time that I was a graduate student at my school. And Can you explain what it was? Yeah. So I don't know if anyone's ever heard of Soylent. 
It's that like drinkable smoothie type thing. And it's supposed to contain all your nutrients that you need and you could live Mm -hmm. off Soylent and you'd be fine. And I remember, I think I was in my, maybe the end of my first year of grad school. And one of the senior grad students brought in Soylent and everyone was trying it. And, you know, that was someone I looked up to and and I thought, okay, well, if they're doing it, then maybe I should do it. Wow. Imagine not having to take the time to eat. Imagine being Mm. able to study or work on my research and all of this time that I could be eating. So that didn't help, right? I started getting onto those meal replacements. And by the way, you know, I haven't tried Soylent recently, but at that time it was, it was just terrible, right? And so I, of course, pretended to like it. And then I, I found these other meal replacements that were more like diet because Soylent, it's not from my understanding, supposed to be like a food that's that's helping you lose weight. It's just supposed to be making it so that you you can save time eating. There were other grad students who were eating these kind of like smoothie shake type products. And then, you know, those were supposed to be for the weight loss. And then I tried those. They obviously, you know, they tasted so much better. And then the part I feel really bad about is that other students saw me drinking this stuff. And they asked, oh, can I try it? And when I ordered it, I had gotten these little like packets so you can give to people because they, they want they want you when you drink it to be the spokesperson for it. And so I would give people these little packets and they'd go order it. So I, I do feel badly about how, like, what was I doing to contribute to this? But it's all wrapped up in this culture of like, we were all striving for this level of productivity and and also like a certain body image and using these type of products to try to achieve that. Interesting. Wow. And at at what point do you realize it's becoming too much? It's unhealthy now. It is becoming a disorder, if you want to call it. There were two things. One, there's just these thoughts and the anxiety around it was taking up so much of my time. I guess time is a big theme for me, right? And I felt like, okay, now this is starting to detriment me. Like I thought this eating disorder was helping me, right? I I thought that by controlling my food, I was setting the stage to control the rest of my life and be organized. And I was starting to realize maybe that wasn't true, but I just had so much anxiety around food. And then I also got the feedback from a doctor who sort of strongly suggested that I get some help and sort of suggested it in a way that was kind of tied to my enrollment in school. Like, well, if this keeps going on, then, you know, you might not be able to continue with the program and that type of thing that type of i don't know how i feel about that the threatening of like a forced medical leave and i i do think it was just like a scare tactic i don't think i i don't know if they would have actually done it but you know they did say you have to go to this appointment with this person and i said okay someone on my school is telling me you have to go do this so i better go do it Mm. and then when you start seeking help, you realize there's a there's a group of students that they are recovering from that, right? 
Yeah. And I think there, I sort of, that's when I was able to understand like the different type of behaviors that I would kind of do around food and the different thoughts and feelings that I had around food that that not everybody has. And just to start to reduce the anxiety around eating. And yeah, it, it definitely, like it comes and goes and I don't know. Some of that internal conversation, I think it is tied to OCD in some way, right? I mean, do you, do you see the connection? That's, yeah, that's what some people suggest that, yeah, the, the thoughts around food and the use of restricting food to kind of reassure yourself about a certain anxiety that has a lot of parallels or or could be a type of OCT. That has been certainly enlightening. I mean, this is something that, again, during my graduate school years, I was doing a lot of stress eating. So in another way, I was using food to solve uh, the, the anxiety problem that I had at that point. It's unhealthy in a different way. I was eating a lot. I wasn't moving as much. And again, like, I don't want to draw a comparison between them, but but it's very interesting to to see how something as innocent as food in those situations can turn into become a lethal weapon, honestly. One thing that I, the thing I was doing with food to alleviate my anxiety was restricting food. But there are, you know, all different types of things that we can be doing with food that are like serving the same purpose, but it's it's ultimately like really, you know, could be harmful to us. Mm-hmm. What would you suggest to someone who is listening to this and is at the onset of falling into that trap or going deep? Yeah. What kind of information at that point or or warning or red flag could have helped you to be made aware sooner or put a stop on it before yeah. it gets too serious? Yeah. I I knew what eating disorder was. I had of course I had I had learned about it, you know, all through school and I I knew that that's what I was doing, but I was thinking like I I know what I'm doing and I know when to stop but then it's it's hard to actually stop and I think the other thing I really really believed was that restricting my food was really helping me in other areas of my life like if I could it helped me feel good about myself so that I could then be focused and productive on my other work. And these are all such like kind of backwards, you know, mentalities, like why should I have had to restrict my food intake to feel, to feel good about myself and to feel like, I don't know that I could fit into this model of like the, the perfect grad Mm -hmm. student who, who had their life in, in control. Interesting. And one thing that helped me may not help somebody else. And now I'm I'm wondering, since we're talking about this really kind of complex topic and I don't have all the answers, should we maybe link some resources in the description? That's not a bad idea. Okay. I think they're going to include, include... Yeah, let's... Um, 
Let's do that. And also, we are going to include the link to your article. Oh, it sure. Was, it was a it was a very good article. It was very well written. It it takes a lot of courage to write an article like that. Honestly, thank you so much for doing that. What is the culture? Because I think we are just going so close to talking about that culture is that is leading to all of these things, and we we are just ignoring that elephant in the room. Let's go there. What is that culture that permeates into these things and is essentially manifesting itself as as all of these? And it it might be as simple as anxiety and depression, or as complex and as this eating disorder. So, do you mean like what is graduate in graduate school? In grad school, what was like the culture of academia that I'm kind of talking about? That yeah, what is that? Yeah, what is that culture that's we may not do these things in an environment that we are not finding ourselves helpless or what? I, again, like I have ideas about like what's going on, but I want to hear if you have an idea about that culture that is forcing students. To go to these dark places, essentially. At least when I was a grad student, my perception of it is that it was this like hustle culture, if that's the right word of it. Like we have to be, there's so much we could be doing and we have to make sure we're doing as much of it as possible. Because in grad school, there was this phrase, drinking from the fire hose. And it's like you're imagining well, like a big hose, like squirting out all this water and you can't possibly drink it all. But there was that pressure to try to drink it all and to to try to do as much as possible. And especially if you're trying to become a faculty member, then you know, like how brutal that process is. And yeah, trying to live up to those expectations can be a lot yeah and on top of that i would say this the value system of meritocracy Mm -hmm. that you are better if you have this many number more publications or if you have a patent or you have this award you have this recognition you've got this fellowship and they put immense pressure Again, I'm not saying that they are fundamentally bad things. I'm not saying publishing is a bad thing, but the the culture that celebrates these things yeah. is not necessarily a healthy one. Yeah, for sure. And towards the end of grad school, I was able to like let go of a lot of that desire that I had to like live up to that culture and be like the poster person for this type of academic culture. And I really ended up focusing on different things rather than trying to build up a list of publications. I focused a ton on student government towards the end. What changed in your mindset? Well, I mean, I think it was a lot of factors outside of my control, like, you know, switching advisors and then different advising situations. And I was like, okay, it it like gave me a little bit more of the flexibility than maybe most grad students had to actually work on things outside of their research projects. I was able to realize like, okay, what are the things that I enjoy? And those Things that I enjoyed were teaching, mentoring students, 
doing microscopy, training other people, like helping other people with their samples. And that maybe doing this, like working on research projects I, I enjoyed, but like in the context of mentoring others and and helping others and teaching others and doing science communication. So I did a lot of that type of outreach. And I think like, well, okay, what one big thing that changes I got on medication and that maybe combined with like starting to get Mm -hmm. help for eating disorder and going on anxiety medication maybe allowed me to just relax enough to be like what do I really want out of like my time in grad school your life also and in my life yeah yeah so I think yeah getting on the medication was probably a big shift for me and I'm very lucky to have had a mental health center at my school where I was able to do that and I know that that's not as easy for for students in other places yeah what do you think about this proposition that the same way that academia needs scholars that they are super skilled and talented in conducting research writing grants and like publishing large numbers of like scholarly works and advising students the same way that we we need those we need people like you and me that are passionate about the mentorship aspects of it, about the uh, workforce development of it, about the outreach, outreach activity, about generating excitement to bring more people to this field. I mean, I what do you think about that? I think it's as important. What do you think about that? I totally agree. I think it is as important. And I think the incentive structures within academia should be reflective of that. Like if you can only get tenure for bringing in money to the university through like disciplinary research, then that's not incentivizing being a good mentor and a good teacher. And I have colleagues who tell me like, oh, you're so lucky to be a teaching faculty. I wish I could try out these different things in my classes and I want to be able to do this. I just don't have time because that directly takes away time from my grants. And I'm like, yeah, I am really lucky to be a teaching faculty because I get the flexibility to do that. And if there's just, because I know there's faculty who really wants to to do this research as well as focus on teaching. And that just seems really hard to do in academia. And it goes as far, I mean, I, I'm just like telling you how diseased this whole system is. It goes as far as not valuing education research as much as like techni- technical research even, you know? Yeah. So even if you can bring funding related to outreach or education research they say yeah but how about like your i don't know structure engineering i mean again like i when i decided to spend time on this i came to this kind of understanding that i have to neutralize those things but i heard those and i lie if i say it didn't have any impact on me again i was ready for that type of criticism. So maybe its impact was a little less because again, like I was prepared. I never argued against, I never pushed back, but again, like I, because I knew where it's coming from. That is just like, oh, 
this meritocratic system of like valuing only one type of contribution and one type, one style of writing and one type of success. And, and honestly, moving forward, I think maybe at some point in history, adopting this mindset and system, it helped us as a nation to grow, uh, get to this point. I don't think it, if it is the way to continue on, we need to bring more people to this field. And as long as the idea, the assumptions are that like, oh, this academia looks like this, these are the demands, it's going to scare off a lot of people that can significantly contribute to to the prosperity of the, the nation, honestly. Th things have to change. And I hope that, you know, I'm always trying to learn new things about what I can do as a faculty member to make sure my students have a better experience than I did and that, you know, whatever I can do to make them feel supported and encouraged to go in whatever direction it is that they want to go. Yeah. And again, like we, 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 we are not in in a high up administrative position, but I think we still have a lot of power. The conversation you have with your students in the class, this conversation, this podcast, I mean, your article, these, they have a very broad reach. And that's something I, I want to remind to all our listeners that like, they don't think they have to be in certain position to be able to do something. I mean, like if we, if you look carefully, I mean, if, if we certainly can do things appropriate, proportional to the power we have, to the position that we have can, that can solve some of that, pro that problem. I learned it from somewhere that I, uh, and I really like that. I mean, think big, act locally. Oh yeah. And it's very consistent with how the world works, honestly. I mean, assuming that I have to wait until like to, I get to this position, then I'm going to generate this revolution. No, revolutions, they are not dictated. They just happen. It's more of grassroots movement. Yeah. So I, I typically end our podcast by asking, I guess, to think about your 12, 13-year-old self and give that Zara a piece of advice. Oh, my God. I guess I would say not every second of the day has to be designed for a certain purpose. It's yeah. it's okay to take, you know, some time to relax, time for yourself. Maybe that's what I would say. Interesting. How about your college age self? Oh, Maybe that's also advice for my college self. Well, I'd say, I mean, that's very... Something that you wish you knew. I wish I had been more empathetic towards myself and extended myself the same type of, you know, benefit of the doubt that I would extend to the people around me and not be so judgmental of myself. I was spot on. <laughs> very good. Very good. Thank you so much again. I really appreciate that. It was enlightening for me. A lot of new information I learned and I hope that also is true for our listeners. Thank you very much again, Sarah. Thank you so much. Bye.